So we are already so excited about what God is doing in the FCA and so excited for this week. And of course, it's an honor, always a, a bit of a scary thing to be invited to do this. Those of you that, that have done it know, right? Because you're speaking to a group of people that are preparing and studying God's Word all the time. So I just reminded myself, it's not about me, it's God's Word, and it's got to be fresh for us, and His Spirit's going to show up and kick off this week, because we are desperate for Him, and He's going to answer that desperate heart cry, right? So we're going to go to a passage of Scripture. I know you know it. I know you've preached it. Isaiah 6. And this week, we're going to ask the Lord, what does Isaiah's vision of God at the altar have to say to us this week? Okay? Hallelujah. So Holy Spirit, you see our hearts, and you know how desperately we need you. We... Um, we don't want to waste our time. Lord, we have hearts to serve you. We have busy ministries. We have busy families. We have stuff, work waiting for us back in our email inboxes and at home. And, and we have set this time away to come to your altar and be changed. This is what we want from you this week, God. We will not leave here the same as we came. We will be changed altered, transformed, as we meet you here at this altar this week. And so quicken your word to us as we open Isaiah 6, as we think about the vision the prophet had. I pray that your Holy Spirit would, even as we look at the text, be speaking to each one of us uh, about how you want that to be applied in our lives. And for us corporately as the FCA, Lord, as we seek you for direction for our fellowship. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that we know you will do this because we have asked it according to your will and through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Isaiah 6. Um, you're you're going to wonder, so I'm just going to lay it out there. This year, I'm all about the New Living Translation, okay? Just so you know. New Living Translation, it's fresh, it's all fresh. There's, there's verses I read and I go, what? That is not in the Bible. And then I look it up in the NIV or the King James and I go, oh yeah, I remember that. So here it is in the New Living. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed. For I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with the burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed, 
and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Yes, go and say to this people, Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Then I said, Lord, how long will this go on? And he replied, Until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, and the whole country is a wasteland. Until the Lord has sent everyone away, and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant, survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a terebinth, or oak tree, leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. The word of the Lord for us today. All right. Tony mentioned I'm married, husband Michael, and we have served in missions um, since 1993, two years in South Africa, and then 17 years in the Amazon of Brazil. Mike's a pilot, and I'm a trainer. So in Brazil, I had the joy of training Brazilians who were called into missions to serve cross-culturally. And now we've lived in the United States. Oh, we have five kids, ages 10 to 22. And my daughter Megan is with me here this week. She graduates in a month. Woo! And, um, and so we knew as our kids were reaching an age where they were going to transition back into U.S. culture that we wanted to do that as a family. It's a hard thing for missionary kids. Um, they look and speak like natives, North Americans, um, but they're not on the inside. They're hidden immigrants. And so, um, so we came back to the States in 2010 to be together as a family for their re-entry time. And um, now I train American missionaries called into cross-cultural service that are going to the nations of the world. Mike trains new pilots that are going to be bush pilots, missionary pilots around the world. And it's an amazing, awesome season for us. And um, uh, as we step out of the very, you know how a camera zooms, that very narrow focus of tribal ministries, working with Indians in the Amazon and, and in the jungle, the bush, the piranhas, loved it. It was amazing, 17 years, fantastic years. But we've stepped back now and we're looking at things a bit more broadly, what's happening in the world in missions. And um, it's, it's been a season for us as a family. So good stuff and bad stuff, transition, you know, all of that. Uh, now, my kids, I don't want to give you the wrong impression you're going to go away and, like, intercede deeply for my kids because you think they're all messed up. They're amazing. They're serving the Lord. God's favor is on us as a family. It's a fantastic time and a challenging time. And um, so this week comes at a very good time for us. I'm excited to spend some time at the altar. Mike sends his greetings. Um, and I have a workshop tomorrow. Tony put a plug in for the prophetic ministries people. Didn't even mention the rest of us. Where are you, Tony? 
man. So tomorrow's workshop, um, we're going to talk about that dance that we do um, following the pattern of Jesus Christ from solitude to community to ministry. And John 12 is our pattern. And how do we maintain spiritual vitality and balance in the context of ministry and the demands of ministry? Now, Isaiah had already been in ministry for a few years, the scholars think. This sounds kind of like that initial calling vision, but the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah were him prophesying during the life of King Uzziah, and he's grumbling, all right, he's really complaining a lot about the people of Israel. You can read later. All the, they're a mess. They are. There's a lot of sin. And Isaiah is just pouring it out. But, and um, King Uzziah was a king for a lot of years. Let's see, I even have it here. 52. He was king for 52 years. Um, so for all of Isaiah's formative years, King Uzziah had been his leader. Now what I want you to notice is we're going to, as we think about the vision that Uzziah saw of King Jesus and how it transformed him at the altar, we're going to look at some of the characteristics of this vision and then what the results were, okay? So the first thing I want us to think about is the timing, the timing of Isaiah seeing the throne. King Uzziah has died. King Uzziah was an amazing ruler for Israel. He was intelligent. The Bible says that God's blessing was on him. He farmed and developed agricultural techniques. He had scientists design new warfare machines, weapons of war. And he had a standing army full of warriors that he had well equipped. And the nation of Israel was powerful. And King Uzziah was famous in other nations. It was just, it was a good time for Israel. And this is what Isaiah had in his history. This is what he knew. King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died, this phrase strikes me because in the time of crisis, in the time of loss, Isaiah does a really good thing. He goes to the altar. Right? He goes to the altar and he's there before the Lord. King Uzziah is dead. King Uzziah was going to be followed by his son, who was 25 years old. Are you kidding me, Lord? Assyria was raising up as a world power, and they were eventually going to conquer Israel. And, and here we have this 25-year-old now, new young leader. Now, King Uzziah, in his old age, Scripture said, after all that God has done for him, after all the blessings, Second Chronicles 26 tells us, he became proud. And King Uzziah is the one that went into the altar and he began to burn incense in the Holy of Holies. And the priests came into him. It says, I don't remember how many of them, brave priests went into him and said, King Uzziah, you can't be here. This is not your job. You're the king, but you're not a priest. And King Uzziah became angry and he refused to leave, and the Lord struck him with leprosy. So even in that phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died, scholars argue about whether that means after he was struck with leprosy, he ran out of the temple, 
um, terrified, and he was put in isolation, and he lived in isolation for seven years, and his son began to rule. And for seven years, Uzziah was still alive, but in house, house arrest, in isolation. So the scholars say, well, maybe it happened when he died legally, when he was put into this house. Maybe it happened when, when he actually physically died seven years later. But there's no question but that the timing of death and grief and transition and political crisis drives Isaiah to the altar. He's in the right place. It said um, Assyria is rising up. Isaiah's nation desperately needs a strong leader, and they have a 25-year-old. No offense, 25-year-olds. But, but he's worried. The impact on Isaiah is insecurity, fear, right? What about uncertain future? What about his own ministry? This king had given him space as a prophet. How's that going to go? There's an ambiguity there in his future. Okay, so that's the timing. Now let's take a look at the scene. In the year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, I saw the Lord. Okay, now, this phrase struck me. It is so confident. It is so powerful. And I know that part of the purpose of, of Isaiah um, recording this prophecy is because he's affirming his authority to speak for Yahweh. He, he is God's man for this moment. And at the same time, he speaks with so much confidence. I saw God. I saw God. My goodness, this stirs my heart. This is not just a, well, I'm waiting for the Lord and I have a word. I think someone's got a headache. Someone's got a headache. Right? It's not a sort of a mushy, ambiguous kind of a hopeful prophetic word. This is, this is, this is right on. Isaiah knows he has seen God because he is not the same person, right? Very powerful. The word there is Lord, Adonai, which means king, ruler, master. Um, Israel's king has died, and Isaiah's feeling worried. What, what's going to happen here? Who's a leader that I can follow? And God reminds Isaiah of real reality, and that is God on the throne. God on the throne, regardless of political waves and rising and falling of nations and economies. And, and um, God on the throne is the true reality. King of heaven. So um, we get a little bit more insight into this in John 12. Because the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that Isaiah actually saw Jesus. He says he was given a vision of the Messiah's glory. Okay? Um, what did this look like, right? We're all wondering, what did God look like? He was sitting on a, on a lofty throne. In our minds, if we've been raised in the church, he was high and lifted up. And there's a raised above aspect of that. Um, ancient Near Eastern rulers were usually impressively robed to show their power, their wealth, their authority, their preeminence. And King Jesus is impressively robed. The train of his robe fills the temple with his glory. So we also have King Jesus 
there at the altar in the temple and his king and priests both being manifested there. Isaiah expresses wonder and awe. God on the throne is to inspire awe in us. Now, I've got to say something about North American faith. We, we deeply understand in our faith the friendship with God that's biblical. And we hold on to his fatherhood and how we are his beloved children. And this comforts us and gives us courage for ministry. But we don't get it when you talk about a king. I don't understand a king. I don't have personal experience with a king. And, and I know that the risk is in my life that um, this access, Christ has torn the veil and he's given us access into the throne room, the presence of the king, but this can breed in me familiarity. Do you know what I mean? I can take that a little too easily. And this is something the Lord has been stirring in my heart, is, is that he wants us um, in that love and that security and that comfort of knowing that he's our loving father. He also wants to remind us that he is high and lifted up. There is an awe there. There is an obedience. There is a falling on our face before the kingship of Jesus Christ that he wants to remind us of. There is a fear of God that he wants to release in our churches. And this is something he does when we catch a vision of him high and lifted up. We need that high and lofty view of the Son of God. Um, Revelation 4 and 5, John describes this heavenly court scene as well, gives us some other details. And verse 2 in Isaiah tells us that attending him were mighty seraphim. The word seraphim is only used here in the whole Bible, and the root word of it is fiery, burning. I don't know. You read the same text that I did, so, it, you know, one of the seraph is going to take the tongs and get a coal off of the altar, so there's maybe a human-like body with the six wings on fire. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to wrap my head around these heavenly beings that are just one of the creatures that Scripture says will attend him in heaven. And I love that, I love that, um, the seraph, in a little bit we'll see, is sent from the altar to minister to Isaiah. And there's other scriptural precedents for this, right? When, when uh, Christ was, um, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and weeping, the Lord sent angels to minister to him when he was being tempted in the wilderness. After he resisted the temptation, God sent angels to minister to him. Interesting. I'm not going to build a doctrine around it, but it really makes me wonder um, what we miss, you know, because we're not tuned in and seeing these um, creatures. And they are calling out to each other, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, there's a revelation here of God's character that I think we need to capture. Um, the role of the seraphim is to worship God and to remind each other what God is like, who God is. And, and the word that is so impressed on them that they have to repeat it over and over again is holy. Holy. Okay, I want to park there on that for a minute. 
Um, holy uh, describes purity, the absence of any other essence, impurity there in that uh, pure substance, right? But there's also a sense of blameless. So we had, when we were in Brazil, we received a, an email from Mike and Colleen from Long Island. Uh, Pastor Mike pastors a church way out on the end of the island in Riverhead, and they had supported us, and they said, we got some anniversary money, and we could make a trip anywhere. So we wrote the names of our missionaries on a piece of paper, and we put them in a hat, and we drew your name. We'll be there next month. So we said, oh, okay. Unusual. It's not happened to me since then, but you're welcome to take the idea, any of you that are here with your missionaries. So they came down and spent a week with us. And um, I... I didn't know them very well, but they told us a bit of their story. They have some adopted children, and one of their daughters really suffered in the um, foster care system before they adopted her, and it was very hard for her to receive their love. She didn't trust it. She was really locked up, and the Lord led their family through a terrible time. Um, the girl was, uh, she was abused by their associate pastor, and they had to call the police, they had to go to court, uh, the trial, everything, it was terrible. And as parents, then their hearts were breaking, and they said, Lord, how could this happen to our daughter? She already doesn't believe that she's significant. She doesn't believe that we love her. She doesn't believe that you love her. And as the court case went on. They were there for her. It was huge. It was a big deal. Their church, it was wounding. It was horrible. And as things progressed, within a few months of that winding down, she came to them, softened, and said, you know what? You really do love me. I, I didn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And then I saw everything that you did to protect me and, and how you were there for me, how you believed me when I told you what had happened. And I, I get it. You do love me. And I think I've figured out my calling. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be a social worker. And I'm going to work with girls in the foster care system because I'm going to tell them my story about how God does know me. He loves me. He knows my name. And he's redeeming my story for his kingdom. And as Mike told us this story... He said, in this case, we know some of what God was working in our daughter's story. We, we were able to see some of the results of God's work. We don't get to see it every time. But in heaven, we're going to know. And we are going to sit around saying, Lord, you're so perfect plan. I didn't get it. I wondered. I asked you why. Your plan is perfect. You are so holy. You are so perfect. Because in heaven, we will see the working out, the glorious unfolding of God's perfect plan in each of our lives. And those questions will just dissolve like smoke. He is holy. He is perfect, and we can trust his heart for us. All right. <laughs> Sorry about that.
Verse 3, Isaiah says, The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now we know that politically things were precarious. We know that the people of Israel are going to go into captivity. We know things are falling apart. There's, they, they are going to build idols inside the temple and worship other gods. It's going to be really bad, right? At the time of Isaiah, it's already really bad. But Isaiah has, from his view at the altar, 2020 vision. And he says, whoa, Lord, you are at work. This whole earth, people don't even see it but it is filled with your glory. This is still a true story. This is still a true story. The world, the Lord is at work in this great earth. He is working out his purposes. His kingdom is advancing much, much faster than the terrible news that we hear on CNN or Fox News. The kingdom of God is advancing. He is filling the earth with his glory. And these beings at the throne... Their, their worship, Scripture says in verse 4, their voices shook the temple at its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. We see here a vision of intense corporate worship, so powerful, it shakes the house, literally, so loud, because that's what a vision of Jesus does, shakes us to the core. All right, so that's the scene. That's the scene that Isaiah sees. What is the impact? You already know where I'm going with this. First thing that happens to Isaiah is conviction and repentance. Right? Conviction and repentance. Verse 5. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. In the other translations, I am undone. I'm unmade. Because um, Isaiah sees God's holiness, he sees his sinfulness. That's the only way it can go down. Instead of, I love this, maybe this is just for me, but instead of just faking it, so Isaiah steps into this worship service, this corporate worship that's happening at the throne of Jesus, Maybe it's just me, but I, you know, sometimes I'm tempted to fake it. Raise my hands, learn the song. It's not worth it. Isaiah goes there with his sin. He doesn't cover it up. He just bleh, blurts it out. Oh, I'm a mess. Oh, God. I'm doomed. Undone. It's not just... I've made a few mistakes. I've committed a few sins. He knows he's rotten to the core, totally unable to salvage himself. Forcing, uh, seeing God's holiness forces Isaiah to face how unholy he is. Okay. When, uh, when we served in the Amazon, we'd go down for three-year terms. And I have five kids, so that's a lot of suitcases. And, and um, they grow. So we're talking about like undies, size 2T, 4T, 6T, 8T, 10T, you know, right on up and socks, and, and we go down with the suitcases, and um, at the end of the three-year term, we, we uh, 
packed up the few things that still fit, you know, in the suitcases. We tried to find those warm clothes because we knew we were going to freeze as soon as we hit North America. Get off the plane, and, and I literally remember at my mother and father-in-law's house in California, um, opening the boxes that we had packed, and she's like, oh, with, the, with the, a, clean, a napkin, I mean, a, a, what do you call that nose thing? Hanky, with a hanky. And I'm like, yeah, that is, that, that is an interesting smell. What, what's going on? So we pull out my clothes. Well, they're in the bush where we, you know, wash our clothes with river water, and they dry on the line, and we wear them every day, and we play in the mud, and, and we trek out to the villages and all this stuff. Those clothes were fine, but not so much in my mother-in-law's living room, right? They came out with the smell, every kind of dingy, everything. There's food stuff going on, and, and I didn't realize... I didn't realize how bad they were till I got them out of there. And, and I'm a little slow. It happened to me more than once. I'd do it again. We'd be down there, and I'm like, oh, well, yeah, this, this dress is still good. That looks good on the girls. I'm packing them in the bags. Why did I bother? They should have just worn the clothes they were wearing. We could have hit the thrift stores when we got here, but I, I would do it again. I'd bring it home. This stuff was miserable. But we do that, don't we? And why? Because down there, I'm comparing it to other muddy clothes. <laughs> it's good enough. It's better than my very, very poor neighbor. And then I get here, and I'm like, oh, actually, that's not good enough. And Isaiah experiences this, this time, deeply, and over and over again throughout his ministry, he gets at the altar of God, and he sees God's holiness. Then his clothes don't look so good. And he says, Lord, I'm undone. All right? The people are a mess. If he can compare himself to them, to Aram, to Philistia, to Assyria, it's all good. But compared to God's holiness, Isaiah is doomed. Um, the difference between shallow religion and a true vision of God is shown in what, what our reaction is. Is it complacency or conviction? Right? Do we see desperation or a little bit of self-satisfaction? Alter... Corporate worship at the altar before the Lord takes Isaiah to a personal encounter. He is holy, and I'm not. Okay? Verse 5, specifically, I have filthy lips. Interesting. Isaiah is a minister of words, and he feels his deep sinfulness right there in his mouth where he ministers. Um, Mike's currently in the middle of a pre-field training course for bush pilots. I said this already. They have seven young trainees. Very exciting, going all around the world. And um, he sends his greetings. 
He's flying this week with a young Indonesian man that's going back to Indonesia as a bush pilot. And um, he's, he's told me about one of the training courses. They have a trainer that comes in that um, talks to the aviation department about words. And, and his uh, key word is, he, he tells them over and over again, he's a professional in the industry of aviation training, and he reminds them over and over again, choose your words carefully. Words matter. Words matter. And that phrase has become important to us as a family. Choose your words carefully. Words matter. Important stuff. And when Isaiah is faced with the holiness of God and the authentic worship of the seraphim, he has to face his own failures to speak when and where God asks him to and with God's words. Okay. So Isaiah's first reaction is conviction of his own sin. His second reaction is intercession. Look at this. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of filthy lips. He doesn't stop for himself, and I know that this is how we operate. When we come to the Word of God, as ministers of the gospel, we go, Lord, what do you have for me? And immediately we go, Lord, what do you have for my team? Right? And that's what Isaiah does. God, me, I see my unholiness here. And now my people, Lord. My people, what can you do for them? And there's a spillover there that needs to happen in our lives. We need to be there before the Lord for ourselves and then the intercession. Vision leads them to concern for other people. Okay, I think that it's important that when we read this passage, there's a pause right here. Because it's important that we spend some time thinking about our sinfulness. The cross is only as impacting as our revelation of our sinfulness. We are messed up. We are messed up. We deserve nothing but hell. That's all we deserve. Anything that we can summon up is ridiculously nothing before the holiness of an almighty God. Seeing how doomed we are magnifies the gift that he then offers to Isaiah immediately after that. So the seraphim comes from the altar, and, and um, the second result of Isaiah's vision is his experience of deep forgiveness and purification. The angel touches his mouth with the coal of fire, and... Um, and he says, your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Now, fire is something that we know about because Jesus, uh, John the Baptist prophesied about Jesus Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is part of our heritage before the Lord. So the sins that Isaiah has recognized in repentance of, and repented of are burned away at the altar, his experience at the altar. So... There's another big pause mark right here. Because there's a lot of believers that never get past that first pause mark. I'm so doomed. I am a sinful person. I am unworthy. I am undone. And they park right there. I know you've got them in your church. Right? That's all they can see is their past and their guilt and their shame and they're trapped. 
It is so important that at the altar that we then receive forgiveness, not just forgiveness, purification. This is all reflected in the Pauline epistles later on. Paul is constantly telling us in Ephesians, you are holy and blameless before the Lord. You're a holy people, Peter says, right? We are purified by the fire from the altar. And don't let the enemy tell you otherwise. Yeah. All the details here in this story, this old story of forgiveness, pointing to Jesus' work on the cross. Okay, the third thing that we see here, we see the scene, what happened. We see its impact on Isaiah. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm still in that one. Impact on Isaiah. Isaiah's experience of deep forgiveness and, and purification. And then his immediate outflowing of surrender to service and mission, to obedience, right? Then I heard the Lord ask, Isaiah hears God's heart. I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people who will go for us? After an encounter at the altar, by the way, we should expect to hear the Lord more clearly. It just kind of cleans things out there so we can hear him. And Isaiah does. He hears him. We hear the things that are on God's heart. Isaiah is probably wondering, how's that new king going to work for us? What are you going to do against Assyria? But, um, and, and what about my ministry, Lord? He's young, right? He's only five chapters into this. But instead, he hears what's on God's heart. And what's on God's heart is, who's going to reach my people? Who can I send? How can I get this word out? Because our experience at the altar is, uh, although it's, we are meant to be greedy for what God has for us at the altar, we are not meant to hoard it. We're not meant to be selfish with it. it. It must flow out into service and obedience and mission. And so Isaiah volunteers, here am I. Send me. Send me, Lord. Um, I love that Isaiah says that before he knows what the job is because the other verses are a little bit of a downer, right? But uh, Isaiah's like, wow, King Jesus in the altar and you forgave me? I'll go. I'll do it. It's awesome. He's totally trusting God's holiness and God's perfect plan. God is holy. His plan is perfect. You can sign up for it. The altar leads us to mission. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in this room is called into full-time cross-cultural missions, although some of you are, and God's going to show you that this week at the altar. But not all of us. But all of us are called to be on mission with the kingdom of God. We are on mission with the King of Kings. And if we're not, we need some time at the altar because that's what's meant to happen in our lives. That's what we were created for. That is our destiny in him. All right, so the result of this powerful vision for such an amazing kickstart to this next season of his ministry, the results are going to be amazing, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? But the Lord's pretty straight with Isaiah at this point. Now, I can't guarantee that he'll be straight with us every time, by the way. <laughs> Sometimes he just doesn't let us know what we're walking into. He just says, trust me, go. Um, but you would expect for such a shocking, amazing, striking vision of God that his number of converts would be huge, that there would be repentance that would break out and maybe a UPG, uh, Unreached People Group Church movement, right? Something like that. But no, the people's response is the next thing we'll look at. The scene, 
The result, or Isaiah's response. Now we'll look at the people's response. What was the people's response? Not as good. The people are going to harden. Isaiah warns the people that the people's response is going to be exactly the opposite of Isaiah's. Follow those key words in, that, in those verses. Isaiah saw, he heard, he understood, he learned, he softened his heart, he opened his ears and eyes, and he turned to God for healing. And God says, with the people, it's going to be the other way around. They're going to they're not going to understand. They're, they're going to watch, but they're not going to learn. Their hearts are going to harden. Their ears are going to be plugged. Their eyes are going to be closed. They're not going to see with their eyes. They're not going to hear with their ears. They're not going to understand with their hearts. And they're not going to turn to me for healing. It's going to be exactly the opposite of what God wants to do and of what God is just doing right then in Isaiah's life. Exactly the opposite. Scary. Scary reality that our response at the altar still belongs to us. We still choose. He gives us the grace. He gives us the revelation. But we still choose what we're going to do with it. And the people of Israel are going to go the opposite direction. Such a bummer. The reminder there for us is, do we fake it? Do we stay superficial? Do we harden our hearts? Or do we go there with uh, repentance and openness? Okay, the second reminder for me in ministry is to lay down my expectations for results. Um, Isaiah was going to preach for over 50, 40 years, sorry, over 40 years. The majority of the people would reject him and turn away from God. He would see his city and his nation torn apart. He would see his people taken into captivity. Tradition says that King Manasseh, four kings later, he preached over the ministry of four kings. So scripture doesn't tell us this, but church tradition says that King Manasseh had his men chase down Isaiah and he hid in a hollow log and they sawed the log in two. And hence the reference in, uh, in the faith chapter in Hebrews about some of our forefathers were sawn in two. Tradition says that was Isaiah. That's how he ended his ministry. Wow. So thankfully, we're all here in one piece. It hasn't gotten to that yet. All right? You may be going through it, but not that bad. But this is a reminder to us that we do not sign up to serve the kingdom of God because of the results. I'm hoping for the best for your ministry, praying for blessing and favor. I'm praying that people come to Christ and his kingdom all over the world, but there is no guarantees when we sign up for this. We don't get to know the results. Thankfully, the fire of the altar gives us the strength and the stamina, the fire on the inside, to walk that 40 years. How did Isaiah do that? He had a vision at the altar of the king of kings. That's what he was serving for and not for the results. All right? Interestingly, this warning to Isaiah is quoted several times in the New Testament as foretelling of the people of Israel's response to Jesus, the Christ. 
This is also very comforting to me in Jesus' ministry. The minister was perfect. His delivery nailed it every time. Jesus the Christ. And he still had this response. Okay? So don't beat yourself up. Unless you can do it better than Jesus. John says, some of the Jews believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't admit it because of fear. And because they loved human praise more than the praise of God. We got to do it, man. We got to lay down our desire to please other people and obey our king and leave the results to him. It's pretty important stuff. Okay. Then verse 11. Ugh, this, this phrase gets me. Then I said, Lord, how long? How long? Because I tell you, sometimes I have the courage to take it on. I have the boldness to begin, but that how long thing just wears me down, right? I mean, the discouragement, and how long? And the Lord's response to him, until it's done. <laughs> this will last until it's done. It's going to play out. I'm sorry. It's got to play out. God's plan is so long-term. Now, Isaiah has no idea. He thinks he's just talking about the people right there. And there is going to be a remnant of the people of Israel that are left there in the land. And a few of them are going to stay strong. And a few of them are going to hold on to God. He has no idea that the new seed that he's talking about is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He doesn't see it. And we've got hindsight. And so we've got 2020 vision. And we're going, oh, yeah, yeah. I write it in my margin. JC. There it is. It's a messianic prophecy right there. And in Isaiah 11, he even expands on it further. And he says that Israel's stump will be, uh, there will be a new branch out of the stump of Israel's family. And, and so the messianic prophecies begin in Isaiah. But Isaiah doesn't know that. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know how it's going to play out. There's no guarantee for him. The end of his story is so much better than he could have imagined. So the last thing that Isaiah needs to hold on to as a result of his vision is eternal perspective. We're not in this for our 35 years and, and uh, retirement plan. Our retirement plan is eternal. This is our focus. This holds on to us. Okay, what is our response then as a group? Um, I, I know it. It's in my heart, and I hear it in your heart, and even in the prayer time before um, for the missionaries. Thank you for that. And I know that we want to be be at the altar with God. We want to see his holiness again. We want his conviction, like Isaiah did. We want his perspective, King Jesus, high and lifted up, above all the insecurities that are facing me right now. For Isaiah, this was a one-time transforming event. God may have that for you this week. God may give you a vision this week that will absolutely blow your mind and will totally change the trans trajectory of your life. He might do that for you this week. We also know we are marathon runners. And some of us have had a vision from God, and the Lord is calling us back to the altar again. We need his sustaining fire.
We need his conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we need his encouragement. Again, we're asking the Lord to give us new revelation. Recognition of sin, deep forgiveness and purification, then total abandonment to service and mission, obedience in him. All right, so I asked the worship team, we're, we're going to, I mean, altered, right? We're going to spend some time at the altar. Hallelujah. And um, we are kings and priests. We are ministers of the gospel. And so I encourage you, um, seek the Lord. And always with both of those layers going on, Lord, what do you have for me? I want it all. I am greedy for what you have. I will not leave here until you speak to me, Lord. And, Father, what do you have for my brother? What do you have for my sister right here? And let's seek the Lord together as the worship team ministers to us in music. Let's um, begin this week asking the Lord to bring us back into his presence. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You are, um, you are invited to speak in the prophetic to the person that the Lord invites you to, um, even to us as a group, if the Lord puts that on your heart. We are waiting on the Lord, and we'll hear what he has to say to us. So, Father God, we, um, we want this. We want this. Like Isaiah, we want to see you, God. Lord, we, we, every one of us has a relationship with you. We know that you know that. But there is more for us. There is, there is a fresh outpouring that you have for us this week. And we want it. And tonight as we begin the first night of this convention, Holy Spirit, we invite you to search our hearts. We invite you to reveal to us those things that don't please you. Lord, this is what we want undone in your presence so that you can forgive, purify, and restore us to the ministries that you've called us to. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 